Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we can gather and we can be reminded again for the first time that we are in need of your help. And we don't always know how to articulate that or respond to that. But I think acknowledging that and being aware of it and seeing what your word has to say about who you are and your posture toward us and your care toward us, I just pray that uh, you would use that in whatever way is useful this morning uh, in my own heart and in the, in the lives and hearts of people that are here. That we would have a sense of your presence and a sense of what that particularly uh, would mean for us as we're on this journey of faith together. In your name we pray, amen. So we'll start by reading Psalm 124. So uh, if you're able uh, and willing, if you could just stand as we focus on God's word and just give it, the, give it the prominent place that we hope it has here this morning. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away and the torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowler's The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. You can go ahead and have a seat. So as we look at this passage, I think the the kind of the key ideas I'd like to just talk about briefly this morning is, in an overarching way, God is on our side. God is for us. And then specifically, in relationship to his presence, to being with us. And that's the idea is that his presence is relentless, redemptive, and restorative. So we'll go through all three of those things here in the the minutes that we have together. But before I do that, I'd love to just back up a little bit and talk about further up and further in. So this is our our series uh, theme and this uh, is, a, is a very personal thing for me, has been over the last couple of years, and, and kind of its implications um, from a growth mindset perspective, but also as believers and the journey that we're on and embracing kind of uh, that journey and a paradigm of understanding this journey in a certain way. And this phrase, as Rob has, uh, I think, uh, talked about before, comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. And The Last Battle is the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And the, the story that unfolds in The Last Battle is a sad, a sad story in a lot of ways. Um, it starts off with things kind of going as normal, but some circumstances and events that interject themselves into the lives of these characters that are, that are very difficult on many levels. And so in this story, from start to finish... There's a fair amount of pain, uh, despair, disappointment, loss of hope, tragically loss of faith, people that believed and now no longer do. Um, 
the use of religion for personal gain and the fallout of that, the spiritual fallout of that, and the pain that comes from that. Um, and in the end, there is this group that emerges. Uh, and, and through all of this thing, and through these negative kind of um, uh, emotions and feelings and experiences, there is nonetheless glimpses of hope, uh, holding on to faith fighting for what's left, even if it's just like little shards and little pieces. And in the end, there's this ragtag group of characters who don't seem to go together all that well, who have been slowly kind of growing and, in, and hanging on. And they're not, they're not coming here like warriors saying, look at, look at how we're going to defeat the evil that is around us. They're, they're just hanging on to whatever thread of hope they can find. And as they do this, and as they get to the end, they are welcomed into Aslan's country, as it's understood. That world that all of our worlds point to, speak to, little glimpses. And as they enter these gates weary and worn and hardly hanging on and just having enough faith just to survive, they are welcomed with this phrase, come further up, come further in. They're not welcomed with rest, take a break. You know, you've, you've had a lot going on, so let's um, have, have rest from that. You don't need to um, stop so much as welcome in and let's keep going. And then we're told, as C.S. Lewis continues this narrative, is that when they get through that gate and they're given that invitation, that they run. And they run and they run and they run. And he says that if you could run all the time without ever getting tired, it's all anyone would ever want to do. And that's kind of the, the uh, picture that's being painted here of this journey and so this journey then is one of experience and discovery. It's one of anticipation that with every arrival and every experience, there's another one and another one and another one. And these characters are doing kind of supernatural things. They're running up waterfalls and they're running through trees. And they are experiencing all these things in greater and greater and greater degrees. So every time they get one, they go to another and another. And it's this never-ending experience of joy and of hope and of anticipation and a promise of more. And there's no time to be judgmental. There's no time to be proud. There's no time to be sad because of the Instagram story you saw the morning before that reminded you that your life could be just a tiny bit more interesting. It's all anticipation, hope, joy, excitement, an experience that accumulates in another experience, a journey that flows into another journey. And so the implications of this concept or this idea, I think, are huge for our lives as believers, as people, uh, as, as husbands, as wives, as children, as work co-workers, as leaders, as we think about this experience that we're called to of going further up and going in, further in. The problem is, is this is extremely countercultural of an idea. It doesn't naturally land on us to think about life this way. And I think the reason is, is that we've been conditioned to think about life in more of a paradigm of arrival than of a journey. Am I there yet? Have I got there? Am I everything I'd like to be? Have I conquered this thing? Have I accomplished these goals? 
all of these things are very arrival-based. I've either done them or I haven't. And then we define ourselves based on the answer to that, the answer to that question. And this mentality creeps into our Christian life in a powerful, in a very profound way, in a very debilitating way sometimes. Uh, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction uh, that Rob has referenced before, uh, author and pastor Eugene Peterson, he states the following about really our, our modern understanding of discipleship. And he's, it's kind of finishing a thought, but I've kind of picked out one part of this quote that I think is helpful. And he says, that makes the work of leading Christians in the way of faith most difficult is what Gore Vidal has analyzed as today's passion for the immediate in the casual. Everyone's in a hurry. They're impatient for results. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. This isn't just a, a Christian phenomenon or something that we deal with um, in, in a discipleship context, but you know, in, our, in our job, in our work life. Um, and and uh, author Carol Dweck, who wrote a book that was super influential for me a bunch of years ago that I've referred to often, both in my professional life and spiritual life, is a book called Mindset. And she kind of lays out this concept that there are two ways of, of, of thinking about growth. Either you have a fixed mindset or you have a growth mindset. And that kind of affects your understanding um, of your place and all of that. And she says, in the fixed mindset, everything's about the outcome. If you fail or if you're not the best, it's all been wasted. The growth mindset allows people to value what they're doing regardless of the outcome. They're tackling problems, charting new courses, working on important issues. Maybe they haven't found the cure for cancer, but the search was deeply meaningful. Mindset change is not about picking up a few pointers here and there. It's about seeing things in a new way. When people change, change to a growth mindset, they change from a judge and be judged framework to a learn and help learn framework. Their commitment is to growth, and growth takes plenty of time, effort, and mutual support. So what does, this, what does this do for us if we think about life and our journeys in this way, this further up, further in, or this growth mindset kind of idea? Well, I think it does a couple of things, is it takes ideas that we're conditioned to feel separated, and it connects them. So ideas like humility and confidence. Can we be confident where we're at, but also have a spirit of humility and grace to both ourselves and the other people around us? What about contentedness and longing? Also two things that I often have felt are, are at odds. I can either be content where I am and, and kind of get lulled into a spirit of melancholy or lack of ambition, or I can have ambition and longing. And what we see here is this sense of where we're at, this contentedness, gratitude, graciousness, with, with, with anticipation and longing for all that there is to come ahead and all that has come before and where we've come. That gives us a posture of, of grace toward each other and, of course, uh, toward ourselves. And I think one of the things as we look at Psalm 124, the song has a reflective nature. So it's, it's got praise, but it also has remembrance. It's looking back at what God did. If God were not on our side, these events would have taken hold of us in these ways. So there's an acknowledgement that God has worked, 
that God is working and, and God will continue to work in this concept of his presence. So it's anticipatory in nature, ultimately laced with gratitude. And we, again, often live our lives in this either-or society. My, my almost five-year-old is very fond of this phrase that if you've been around him for any length of time, you've heard it. And that's, best day ever, <laughs> right? And you will hear that phrase, if he said it at your house because of a party you've thrown, it is very genuine, but he'll say it again the next day and the next day and the next day if the circumstances are right. The problem is that there's also a worst day ever, and those can generally come around four minutes apart, depending on whatever's happening. And we have that mentality too, right? We let whatever bad happened generally define our understanding of that experience. Have you ever had a great vacation and it ends with you leaving the keys of the rental car in a, uh, a train that was leaving Chicago? It's oddly specific, isn't it? <laughs> Does that define the whole trip? <laughs> sure hard for it not to. But we still were in Chicago. We had a good time. We saw these things. We experienced these things. But we let those things, whatever happened at the end, or whatever happened that was negative, tell us how to feel about ourselves, how to feel about that experience. In relationship to um, a, a recent article that a friend sent me about Derek Webb. I don't know how many were Kademan's Call fans back in the day, or maybe still are, just really influential music for me. I remember at the time, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, really, really uh, potent, really great songwriting. And they are going to do a reunion. And their main, one of their main songwriters and prominent members, Derek Webb, has since um, left the faith. He, he has been fairly vocal about that and been in interviews and those kinds of things. And so there's all this tension around this reunion because Derek Webb's got to be back because he's a prominent part of the band. How does that work? He used to be a believer. He no longer is. Does that just kind of... Uh, write off everything Kademan's Call ever sang or wrote or did or the things you experienced or I experienced while listening to their music. And a friend of mine sent me this article and we were kind of contemplating this idea. It's a difficult thing to process, uh, especially in this age of, as, as more than I've remembered, uh, people deconstructing their faith. What does that mean for the things they taught, believed, learned, experienced? And I, I remember texting him back, and I was just kind of like <laughs> in one of those rant moments, you know? And I just said, deconstructionism doesn't, doesn't discredit anything. Like, God still worked. He still did stuff. People still responded to that. They still learned and grew. Like, Derek Webb saying he's no longer a Christian, he doesn't have the power to do anything different about what God is doing in the world. And I think that that's important for us to realize, too, as we look at our own lives. Whatever's been happening or is happening, you, you can't just write off. You're not, we don't have the power to write off everything else that has happened, everything else that will continue to happen. So as we look at this, this kind of this uh, continued concept of, of uh, this journey we're on, um, the Israelites, as they're looking at their own journey, I think the two pervading ideas here are God's presence and God's pursuit. And so we'll kind of talk about that a little bit here. But Eugene Peterson, as I just mentioned, um, his, his book was influential as I was preparing for this. And, and the foreword, 
there was his son who wrote, um, who, who wrote his eulogy. Eugene Peterson recently passed away, probably a little over a year ago, I think. And his son gave the eulogy and he wrote a poem. And he got up in front of everybody at this funeral and he uh, read this poem. And um, this was reported by the Christian Post, these, these, uh, these excerpts from this, from, that are on the slides here. They say, it's almost laughable, uh, Leif Peterson says, how you fooled them. How for 30 years, every week, you made them think you were saying something new. He said as a part of a poem addressed to his father, they thought you were a magician in your long black robe, hiding so much of your ample sleeves, hide, hiding so much in your ample sleeves, always pulling something fresh and making them think it was just for them, he continued. They didn't know how simple it all was. They were blind to your secret. And Leif Peterson said that he knew his father's secret, however, as he'd been telling him for 50 years. For 50 years, you steal into my room at night and whispered softly to my sleeping head, it's the same message over and over. God loves you. He is on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. If the songs of ascent then are spurring us further up and further in, Psalm 124, I think, is telling us, just take, take a minute, take a breath and hear those words. You don't have to do anything with them, just hear them. And that they are true and that they are potent. That God loves you. He is on your side. He's coming after you and he's relentless. Sometimes as a parent, I wonder what my job is like what I can do to help my kids in their relationship with God I think if I only ever said that every night it'd do all right and that's what God I think is inviting for us this morning to hear this concept too of finding shelter is interesting that you know that is our that kind of our subtitle in this sermon is that the nature of shelter is a kind of a posture of rest or even giving up like when do you if if you are in a position or some of you I'm sure have been in a position where maybe you were out in the wilderness exploring adventuring and you needed to find shelter you know this is like if you have a kid and you're doing a hike or you're doing something growing up we'd always get the same speech it's like if you get separated from the group do what don't do go anywhere stay put Right? And you have, to, you have to kind of drill that into kids' heads and adults alike because it's not the natural response. The natural response is, how do I get myself out of this situation? How do I solve this and figure out some kind of a way back? I'm sure it's not too far back. I'm sure I can kind of just get around the corner and figure it out. But eventually what happens is you exhaust all effort. Like nothing is working, sun's starting to set, the temperature's getting colder, what do you do? And so there's this kind of this posture where you finally resign to sit in the promise of help and deliverance, to, to rest in the promise of help and deliverance. And that's a vulnerable place to be. It's why so many of us avoid it. It's very uncomfortable to rest in that place. So as we look at... Uh, these ideas, I've got just three kind of thoughts, I think, to just try to unpack 
unpack this concept from Psalm 124. Um, that's his presence is relentless. His presence is redemptive. And his presence is restorative. So the first statement that we're confronted with at the beginning of Psalm 124 is, God is on your side. Or really, a hypothetical question that is being poised to us, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, during all of these circumstances that were coming, if the Lord had not been our side, these are the things that would have happened. So what does that mean? God being on our side, Lord being on our side. The first thought that came to my mind was kind of negative, to be honest. Uh, I think we're living in such a culture of polarization and weaponized polarization where we create sides even where there aren't sides because that's a useful construct. That's a useful construct for, for power, for making your point known. If I can create tribes and create these, these, these places where people can feel threatened um, or that they disagree, then we, can, then we can kind of speak and message specifically to those groups and, and get our agenda across. If you read a news article and that article is talking about how, you know, we're really actually not so different and if we just would sit down and talk to each other, we'd realize there's a lot more to agree on than to disagree on, that article is not gonna get a lot of clicks. But if I tell you to be afraid that the other side is coming, then you want to take a look at that. And so we're really seeing this a lot in our society. I'm sure, and I know it's always been a thing, you know, listening to Paul's sermon last week where he read a headline that was, you know, extremely old and it sounded like it was, you know, happening today. But I think polarization is especially being used in a kind of a weaponized sense right now. And Christianity or Christian groups, political parties are utilizing this. God's on our side. He's not on your side. Sports teams, you know, you always have the sports teams pray, you know, God help us. And there's this one comedian that pointed out, you know, the other team, they're, pray they're praying the same thing. You know, who's God gonna, whose side is God on in this? So what's, what's at the heart of this? What's, uh, what is the... What, are, what is the psalmist saying and what are the commentators, what are the um, Israelites singing as they ascend? One commentator noted the following. He said, the phrase had been on our side in the original language is the past tense of Emmanuel, God is with us. Thus the community confesses that God has been with them in their past history. What a beautiful way to think about that idea of God being on our side, that that concept of Emmanuel, God with us, is redemptive in nature. It's restorative in nature. It's, pers it's, it's pursuing in nature. The heart of God in this, in this passage or in this phrase then is his commitment and determination to be on your side. You know, we're often thinking about us being on God's side and how, where we are at with God. But this, this is about none of that. It's about God's commitment to be on your side. A couple of great, some of my favorite examples of this with different theologians and Christians over the years. One would be C.S. Lewis, who have always loved his uh, testimony or 
his articulation of his testimony and coming to faith would be where he, he said, um, and this, this was uh, quoted by J.D. Greer, said, C.S. Lewis is one of the more intriguing stories of conversion. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he called himself the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England, drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. Somehow that doesn't usually make the list of people's favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. Or this one, I don't, I don't have a slide for this, but this um, poem written in the late 1800s by Francis Thomas Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. It says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthian ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears... I hid from him, and under running laughter of visted hopes I sped and shot, precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperpetuated pace, deliberate speed, a majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest me. Summary, God loves you, he's on your side, he's coming after you, and he's relentless. That is often the only testimony I feel like I can ever give anybody. Why am I here? Why do I have faith? Why am I with this ragtag group of people at, at the gates of Aslan's country, God hasn't let go of me yet. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I think that's the testimony of a lot of believers over the course of history. The resolve and commitment of God to be with you and for you and pursue you is the thread of Scripture all the way from the New Testament to the Old, from the desert to the cross. The Psalmist David, he talked about this in other places too. Not just in this psalm, but a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of his songs had a, a theme like this. 139, verses 5 through 12, just to take a, a short excerpt. He says that you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven... You're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hide me. But I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So his presence then is uh, relentless. And then it doesn't just stop there, though. His presence is also redemptive. It's, it's pursuing and persuading. So the next few verses of Psalm 124, from verses 3 all the way down to 7, almost to the end of the psalm, describe the, the encounters, describe what happened and describe how they were being rescued from that or how they were being 
protected from that? How are they being redeemed from those circumstances and from the things that were happening to them? There was a flood. There was a fowler. But there was... Those circumstances were not able to overtake them in a destructive way. There was redemption happening in the midst of those circumstances. This flood analogy isn't just that they that it was there, but if if God if the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been utterly destroyed by that. We would have been swept away by that flood, and we would have not been able to escape that fowler. And so we, they, the congregation gives blessing to the Lord, who's who has who has uh, redeemed them from the teeth of this circumstance or these literal enemies. So when we think about God pursuing us in his presence and how that's redemptive, we think about uh, things where he is, he is aggressively coming after us, coming after our enemies, attacking our sin, those types of things. And I think those are all in view and, and true. But I think there's another way to understand it as well. And I think this approach is, is most character-defining for God as we see the arc of history throughout scriptures. And that's his pursuit of us being redemptive in nature. And I was listening to a, a, an interview or a debate between a theologian and a theologian and an atheist. A prominent, both were prominent in their, in their fields. And it was at a university of some kind, I think in New York, and it had been recorded. And I, I came across it somehow. And I remember that the they were talking about the, the, the differences in the, or the, the, the atheist was trying to talk about what the things about Christianity that were most offensive to him. And he said, so this is the most offensive thing to me. So, you know, we're all ears. I'm, I'm all ears. I would love to know what the most offensive thing about Christianity is to you. And this is somebody very well educated and studied. And he said, the most offensive thing to me about Christianity is this notion that we are to love one's enemies. And I thought, well, I think there's a lot of stuff you could have not like about Christianity. That doesn't seem, like, that seems to be one of our, like, cool parts, you know? <laughs> like, th- that, that you, are, you could, somebody could be against you and you could respond in love to them seems like a really powerful concept. And he continued and he said, it, it's a reprehensible idea. And he said, the way that I understand my enemies is is really the evil of the evil. You think about uh, dictators, mass genocide, unthought of evil. And he went on to say, and the only proper response to this evil is not to love them. I will not love them, but it is to wish for their utter and total destruction. That's the only proper response to evil like that, to enemies like that. And the way that the this theologian who was debating him responded, has, has struck with me ever since. And he, and he responded very calmly and just said, you know, I, I hear that and I understand that. And I think that there, are, there is a true aspect of that, that God does wish the destruction of his enemies. The, the difference is, is that he most notably does this by turning enemies into friends. This is his heart. This is his redemptive posture toward us. In his book, Live Like an Arnian, Joe Rigney discusses C.S. Lewis's kind of approach to some of these concepts and his use of magic in the Chronicles as a whole. 
magic is discussed on a, on a number of levels, and it's discussed in kind of four key ways. If you're not, if you haven't been to Narnia, I like how Joe Rigney talks about it. Uh, if you know C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, you've been to Narnia. So I've been to Narnia. Some of you have. Some of you need to go. It's a great place. Uh, you don't lose keys there. Um, but he talks about magic in four ways, and he talks about uh, black magic, white magic, deep magic, and deeper magic. So those four kind of concepts. And he says this, black magic enslaves and oppresses people, but white magic liberates and restores people. And deep magic is the law of the emperor and the expression of his character, the moral order of things. But there's another kind, and it's referred to as deeper magic. And it's most notably understood, in the, and it's talked about in this way, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan, as a, as a kind of a picture of Christ, lays down his life for the children, for Edmund, uh, for the characters, the humanity, and the other characters in that story, by dying on the stone table and giving himself to the witch. And it's this grotesque scene where, where he is murdered uh, to keep deep magic, to keep the law of deep magic. And so we come on the scene and you've got Lucy and Susan and they discover this stone table and it's cracked and Aslan is gone, right? Okay, so you have a bit of a, of a coming to the tomb moment, right? Of um, Martha and Mary. Lucy and Susan, they discover this and they say this. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their back. Backs, it is more magic. I gotta give my Aslan voice here. <clears throat> it's getting late in the morning. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a deeper magic still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Rigney continues as he kind of describes this idea. He says, this is the true picture of magic in Narnia. And its magic is mirrored in our world. Conflicts of power and enchantments are real, and they matter. But beneath the power, encounters, and magical warfare is deep magic, and deeper the inflexible solidity of the moral law and the breathtaking beauty of sacrificial love. Lewis reminds us that substitution is a kind of magic, a mysterious supernatural force that transforms the world, overcoming every form of treachery. In Narnia, as in our world, deeper magic triumphs over deep magic. Through sacrifice, mercy triumphs over judgment. I think we should not only think about the power of this in relationship to salvation. I think that's very much in view, that that is the love of God on our behalf, that stunning display of self-sacrifice. But this is something I think we're called to, too, to show a glimmer of deeper magic in our lives. Whenever we love like Jesus, ever so remotely and small and just a little shred, when you see another human give of themselves for another with no benefit to their own, whether you see that in 
a marriage that's difficult, whether you see that in relationships that seem beyond repair, it is always a glimpse of that deeper magic that is transformative in this world. Like this, this is, that was the point of Jesus's life and death to bring that concept into the world and let it shake the whole foundation of how we understood how things worked. This is not a normal, common way to see the order of things. This is breaking the order of things. Deeper magic breaks the order of things. And this is the redemptive power of God's restorative presence, Emmanuel, in our lives and in our experiences and in our relationships. In this moment and, and in this time where, they, where the Israelites are singing about God, protecting them and redeeming them, they still experience this flood. It just was not able to overwhelm them in the way that it could. And that is kind of their expression as they're kind of almost standing on the other side, much like these characters going through Narnia. They're just going, man, if Emmanuel was not with us, like if that, I, if if God was not with us, if the Lord was not on our side, if, if that was not his posture toward us, this would have totally gone another way. Bitterness totally would have taken me over. Sin would have got me. Temptation would have got me. Pain would have blinded me. All of these things, if Emmanuel was not here, if the Lord was not on our side, this would have gone a whole nother way. And that's what they're saying. But not only is, is his presence um, redemptive, but it's also uh, restorative. And the way the psalm ends here, and as we end, uh, it says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. I love that creation is brought into the conversation. This idea of God's, I think we often look at God as creator as like, well, he's powerful, right? He can do these powerful things. As, as a, a fellow creative uh, who, who is a graphic designer, that's my, that's my job, I always love the fact that what it means to, part of what it means to be created in God's image is not only be relational, but also be creative. That's his posture toward the world. That's his posture toward solving problems, toward bringing beauty into, into uh, to bear. Creation is all about creativity, hope, and renewal, and God's nature is creative in nature. And creativity, then, is a fundamentally hopeful concept. And God, pro God promises to be our help and to be our side. These are not static things. These are, these are active, creative ideas, progressive, redemptive, and filled with expectation. So arrival, then, continues to not be the goal but renewal is the goal. And that is happening uh, over and over again and, and as time goes on. One of my favorite quotes uh, from J.R.R. Tolkien, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, is where he talks, where he gives this quote from Treebeard. And Treebeard says, in, in relationship to the hobbits, wanting to know who's, what his identity is. What's your identity? Who are you? And he says, I'm not going to tell you my name. I don't have a voice for Treebeard yet, sorry. Uh, not yet at any rate. For one thing, it would take a long while. My name is growing all the time, and I've lived a very long, long time, so my name is like a story. And I think that's one of the more um, 
encouraging things that I've, I kind of tell myself and have been able to tell friends or other people is that our story isn't done being written yet. Your story isn't being done being written yet, regardless of where you see yourself, where a friend that you care about is. Their story's not over yet. They may have written, Derek Webb may have written, the, he may have written the last chapter, but his story's not over yet. I think that's the heart of God here and the heart of God toward us. God calls us to go further up and further in, but he's taking that journey with us. He, his presence is a part of that. That's the whole point of, I think, uh, the whole point for us this morning. When Eugene Peterson passed away, it was reported that he was laying in his hospital bed and people were around him and they were catching glimpses of the things that he was saying. And it was reported that as he passed away, he, he laid back on his bed and he looked up and he smiled and he said, let's go. What a, what a cool way to think about the way this journey doesn't end, but keeps going. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for meeting with us this morning. Thank you for your redemptive, restorative presence and thank you for your relentlessness in coming after us. And I pray that no matter how weak we feel this morning or discouraged, that whatever little shred of hope we're hanging on to and whatever shred of belief you have graced us with, that we would hold that up as confidently as anyone with three times as much. And that we would hear your call to come further up and come further in. We'd be patient with ourselves and gracious to ourselves as we think about our story not being done, being written yet. Now we'd be gracious and patient with other people as well as we encourage them and reach down and take their hand to pull them up, further up and further in. In your name we pray, amen. As we close uh, this service, we'll close the way that we do every um, Sunday here at Redeemer, and that's that we take communion together. And so uh, if you're new with us here, there's four stations positioned around the room. Uh, two in the back are, are contained packets with the uh, cup and the elements in there. And then on the side, we have um, bread and wine on this side and bread and juice on this side. And there'll be some songs and you can just come and um, take that whenever you feel led. But as we do that, I think sometimes communion can be a time of, of resolve, can be a time of... Um, talking with God in a, in a very, you know, let's, I need to work on these things and here are my, here are my promises. Um, here are my thoughts about how to do that. And I think maybe just this time, if you can, if, if um, you're able to just hear his, hear his response that he loves you and he's for you and he's coming after you and just accept, just accept that for whatever that is for you this morning. Uh, go to the table as you feel led.